reading verses 2 through 16 here in just a moment. If you need to borrow a Bible to read those words with us, uh, you can find that in the pocket of the pew in front of you. 1 Corinthians 11 is page 901 in that Bible. This is the word of our God. Paul writes, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. May his blessings be upon this reading of it. You may be seated. Thank you. Recently this week, Bree and I watched a movie about Tetris, which I was expecting to be much more concerned with the video game that I remembered playing when I grew up, and it was quite a bit about uh, intellectual property, the property rights, how to get property rights out of the USSR. I know it sounds very legal and enthralling, but it wasn't horrible. It just didn't have a lot to do with the game itself. It wasn't quite as scintillating as I was hoping it was. Tetris was an amazingly big game back in my day. They're still playing it today. Everyone played it. If you don't know what it is, you are one of the few. It, it's a game where you just have these individual four-block pieces falling from the top of the screen, and it is up to you to arrange them so that you can create solid rows along the bottom. And when you do, something beautiful happens. That row disappears. And as long as you don't let those blocks build up to the top, you're okay. And once they fill up all the way to the top, the game is over. And the game continues to go faster and faster and faster the longer you play it. This is, as it were, a good picture of what biblical theology is meant to do. The Bible presents us with these individual pictures and snapshots and ideas and thoughts that come down to us, as it were. And our job as theologians, our job as people who think about the Bible is to try to arrange them into a picture that's coherent and meaningful, that, that works well. As, as an example of this, basically that's how the early church came up with the idea, or didn't come up with the idea, but found in Scripture the idea of the Trinity and why heresies were indeed called heresies. Because as these little snippets of the Trinity were found throughout the Scripture, 
The Trinity was the best way to organize them. They were the best way to make a coherent picture out of them. And what happened to heresies is these these passages about the Trinity that they were trying to handle, they weren't placed in the right spots. They weren't located in the right places, and they didn't get rid of the rows, and they began to build up and build up and build up until, you know, as the early church saw, game was over. Typically, each text provides some of these pieces. Some are easier to deal with, some are harder. Each one contributes its own advantages and issues. The text before us, though, might be the most challenging in all of the New Testament. And the pieces that fall from these 15 little verses come so fast and so hard, it's difficult to know what to do with them all. And quite frankly, you will easily feel overwhelmed and unsure of what you ought to do. Today, we're going to do our best to understand this particular passage. And I'll admit, right at the outset, there is a I won't admit that. But the rest of it, I'll admit, there's a lot of stuff to go through. And what I would really like to do is to do what I normally do and just kind of present to you what I think the passage is saying and then have application for it and go through it like that. But I'm going to be honest with you. What I'm going to tell you stands at odds with, with the way the, I'm not with what you read, but with the way the ESV puts it. And because of that, I'm going to have to warrant basically my conclusions from the passage. So we got to go through it step by step. I apologize about that. I don't like to be a running commentary, but in this case, I think it's kind of necessary. I kind of labored over this all this week trying to figure out how I was going to do this, and I, I don't see a way around it. So the majority of our time this morning is going to be spent dealing with problems. It's going to be de- spent dealing with the pieces that are coming down to us and, and kind of walking through those. And as we do so, I hope that, that you can get a better grasp of what this passage is talking about and what it means. And furthermore, because there are parts of this that I just don't know what to do with, um, and parts of this that I'm pretty sure about, I'm going to give, kind of to break up the monotony as well, I'm going to rank where my confidence level is on all of these issues. From a zero, which is basically meaning I know nothing about it, to give you a picture of what a zero is, a zero for me would be the coding languages of Python and C++. I know nothing about them. And to give you a picture of how little I know about that, I had to look up the names of coding languages to give that as as an example. And to give you a better example, I forgot that they were called languages. So I had to look up even that. I know nothing about it. And so that's a zero. 10 is like, do I exist? Yes, I exist. So we're going from zero to 10 on on all these issues to try and give us a a picture of what this text means. It's a very difficult text. So let's just jump right into it. There are nine problems that we're going to go over. And these were just the major problems in this text um, that hopefully we can start to get a picture of what this text is talking to us about. The first problem, is Paul here talking to everyone or is he only talking in a limited way to church folk? So at the very beginning, we read, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Is he talking about every man in Corinth, every, every able-bodied man who fills a position anywhere, who stands on two feet or is lying in a bed, anyone who is male in the vicinity of the greater Greco-Roman area, or is he just talking about people within the church? It appears to me that he is talking to people within the church, that same every man which appears seems to imply that he's talking about every single man everywhere, is repeated in verse 4 directly in line with just talking about men in the church, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered. So the idea there is that every man is within the church. I think that every man is meant to only be implying people within the church. 
if you kind of extend this, the whole section from chapter 11 as we enter into a new section of this letter from 11 through 14 is dealing with problems mainly found within the body of believers in the church as they are dealing with church services. So we've got here at the beginning of chapter 11, the praying and the prophesying of women with their heads uncovered. We have the Lord's Supper coming up. We've got the exercise of spiritual gifts within the church, and specifically in chapter 14, of that within the service of the church. So it fits that Paul here is not talking about some general cultural thing, but he's talking specifically about people within the church. My conclusion here, I give a solid seven. I'm pretty confident in it. I would be surprised if that weren't true, but I'm not certain of it. The second issue, cruising along. The second issue, husbands and wives. The next two issues are actually translation issues, and they happen to be fairly important in this particular instance. Greek has two words where English uses four. So when we speak of husbands and men, Greek just has one word for that. And context is what tells you whether it's talking of a husband or whether it's talking of a man. Same thing happens for women. There's one word for woman and wife in Greek, and the only way you can tell whether it's talking about a woman or a wife is depending upon context. Now, the easiest giveaway is, if you're put up with just a little bit of grammar for a second, we've got some more grammar coming, sorry about that, is a possessive. So, for instance, if you were to read, like, his woman, that means his wife. If you were to read her man, that means her husband. Now, the way we have it written in verse 3, the head of every man is Christ, but the head, or the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband. First, there's no possessive there. So there's a couple of reasons why I think that that is a bad translation and why it's going to affect everything that we understand about this particular passage. There is no possessive in the Greek here, which means it's wide open. It could mean man and woman. It could mean husband and wife. But there's another problem that comes up. The ESV recognizes that it cannot translate this same word the same way consistently throughout the passage. For instance, when you come down to verse 7, it says, for a man ought not to cover his head. It doesn't say, for a husband ought not to cover his head. But that same reference there is to the same person that was being talked about before. And it's the exact same word. There's no difference between what's happening in verse 7 and what's happening up in verse 4. There's no indication that husbands and wives are in view here. Furthermore, thirdly, I don't think that it makes sense of Paul's later examples and reasoning from Genesis. When he references Genesis, he's referencing creation, and he's referencing man and woman being created. What he's not doing is referencing the end of Genesis 2, which talks about their marriage to one another. He's only talking about creation of generally men and the creation generally of women. And lastly, this creates a very odd thing where he is talking to married women about having authority on their head, but says nothing to single women. And yet when it comes to hair, he is referring to it in exactly the same kind of way, that a hair is there for a covering. So are single women allowed to remove head coverings when they pray or prophesy? It, it doesn't seem like that's exactly the case. It seems like it's narrowing it down far too much. 
Because there's no possessive, because the same kind of word is used repeatedly throughout the text, and because it almost always and certainly points to a generality of men and women, I don't think that we're talking about husbands and wives here. I'm pretty confident on that. Not to a point of a seven, but a strong six. Okay. That brings us then to the translation of verse 10. Verse 10 reads this way. That is why a wife, and we we just got done talking about that, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Verse 10, a very literal reading of verse 10 would be that she has authority on her head, or she has authority over her head. Now, in English, when we hear authority over something, we can talk about authority as something a person is, and not only something that a person has. And so when we hear she has authority over her head, that could mean that she has somebody who is over her as an authority. This is the way that most people read it. And this is why, the reason why, for instance, the ESV translates it that way, that she has a symbol of authority over her head, just to make it clear. They're saying this authority that exists over her head is a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of the authority of the man who stands over her as her husband. The problem with this, though, just to be clear about this construction, is that in Greek, it can never, ever, ever mean that. It just never means it. Authority is never something that a person is. It is always something that a person does. It is the exercising of authority. This is quite literally saying that she has the right to to her head, which is kind of weird. It's, It's talking about whether it's Her hairstyle, whether it is wearing a head covering, she has the right of authority of it. There's no other way that you could probably interpret that if you know Greek. An early 20th century uh, scholar named Ramsey says that this particular verse, of this particular verse, and this authority, he says that this authority is the authority to which she is subject. Sorry about the popping. That she is subject is a preposterous idea which a Greek scholar would laugh at anywhere here except in the New Testament, where, as so many seem to think, Greek words have any meaning that the commentators choose. In other words, it can't possibly mean that she has a symbol of authority on her head. It means that she has authority over her head. I'd give that a solid nine because I just don't see any way around that. But that leads up to the fourth problem, which is, What in the world does that mean, that she has authority over her head? The thing that helps us here is that Paul's already talked a lot about having authority, which we've translated in other places as rights. Paul talks about his right to collect from churches money because he preaches the gospel. He's talked about the right that the strong have to eat meat offered to idols. They have that right. In a very abstract sense, they have the right whenever they want to. But Paul has also done a lot of work over the past three chapters of saying there are times when that right is limited for the good of the congregation, for the good of people, for the good of their faith within the Lord. We limit rights. And so I think that that's what he's saying here. Normally, you would say, a woman has every right to do what she wants to with her hair, with her head. She has the right to to bear these things. But in this particular case, she ought to lay that right aside. That's what I think it means. I give it a solid three, though. I'm really not terribly convinced. 
That leads us up to the end of verse 10, which when I read, I'm sure all of you are like, I wonder what that means, because of the angels. And this is the only time I'm going to give it a big fat zero, because I have no idea what because of the angels means. And, and to soften the blow to my pride and ego, no one knows what it means. It was clear that Paul knew exactly what it meant, and it was clear that he thought the Corinthians would know exactly what he meant. But somewhere along the line, the Corinthians forgot to pass down that information, and we just don't have it today. And no matter how many times people might get up in front of you and say that we know exactly what it means, we don't actually know what it means. I don't know. I don't think it's terribly integral to the entirety of the passage. That gets a zero. Now, having laid that groundwork, we can turn in the sixth spot to the meaning of the metaphor that Paul applies here, and that is the meaning of the metaphor head. And this just happens to be, along with wives and husbands in the translation of that, the most important part of this particular passage. This is the most important question that we have to ask, and this will indeed affect the way that we read the remainder of this particular passage. Now, it's clear that Greek can use head just to refer to a literal head, the thing that is being held up by the rest of your body, and that there are plenty of uses in Greek, as there are in English, where head is being used in a slightly metaphorical, but not terribly metaphorical way, like the head of a column or something like that, the head of a pillar. There are ways in which, there are ways in which head is used of a, of a metaphor in Greek language and certainly throughout the New Testament. We might think that Paul uses this metaphor all the time, specifically because he uses this metaphor of the church being the body of Christ, but truly it only occurs 23 times in Paul, and 14 of those occurrences are in the passage that we are reading today. That doesn't leave a whole lot, and the rest of them are collapsed basically into two books and into two areas. In the book of Colossians, which occurs three random times, and then the book of Ephesians, where it occurs specifically when he's dealing with husbands and wives. And studies have been done to try and figure out what this means in the wider Greek language. Very many people have argued that it can only mean source. It, it means source, like headwaters, okay? Other people say that it means only only authority. And it can only mean authority. It can't mean anything but that. They've spilled a lot of ink from 1950 up through probably somebody's working on doing the same thing as we speak in the middle of a church service today. Some scholar somewhere is trying to work on it. But it seems like the consensus is this. It can mean either. There's actually a third meaning that it takes up that we're going to talk about today as well. And the only way that you can tell what meaning it's supposed to take is because it's a metaphor context. That's what metaphors do. And so the way we're going to have to figure out if it means authority or if it means source or if it even means something like preeminence is by looking at the context. Because Paul uses this word in all three ways. So for instance, in Colossians 1.18, he uses it quite clearly to mean preeminent. There he writes that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Chris, let's switch to this one, please. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The use of head there quite clearly indicates that it is preeminence. He is the firstborn. He is the first in line. He is the head of all things. It's not talking about him necessarily having authority, although 
that's there as well. And it's not talking about him being the source, although that is there as well. It's talking about him being the best, the highest. Paul can also use it to mean, very directly, source. So for instance, later in Colossians, in Colossians 2, Paul writes, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reasons by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. It's quite clear that that growth is from the head. And we might argue that Paul doesn't know his biology pretty well, but that's okay. It's a metaphor anyway. And what he is saying is the growth that comes to people is from Jesus. He is the source of the growth. That's why he is the head. But quite clearly, Paul can also use it to mean authority. In Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, there's plenty of people who come to that passage in Ephesians and say, well, that passage in Ephesians can can mean source as well. And that's true, but realize what he's grounding there. He's giving a reason why. Why should wives submit to their husbands? Wives are to submit to their husbands because husbands are the head of their wives. The reason why is because he's using the metaphor of head as a source of authority. Now, we ought to say that because it's a metaphor, all three of these understandings can be present at once and they can be present in mixed amounts. The question is, in the passage of 1 Corinthians 11, what does he mean by it? Which one is actually the most prominent in there? I do think that there's a prominent meaning, and I think that it is source. I don't think that it's authority, and I don't think that we should read it with authority kind of mixed into what we're thinking. There's a reason why. One is that we are not dealing with husbands and wives. If we think that the text, as the ESV has it translated, and I'm not against the ESV's translation, I I think I understand why they did that, but once you translate it as husbands and wives and you include this metaphor of head, the only other reference we have in our heads for what that could possibly mean would be Ephesians 5, which automatically implies that there's authority there. But once you stop thinking in terms of husbands and wives, there is no reference to authority anywhere in this passage with one exception, and that is that the woman has authority over her own head. That's the only place where authority comes in. It's not mentioned in the Genesis passages. It's not mentioned anywhere else. Whereas the idea of source is clearly mentioned two times in this passage. One, when he straightforwardly in verses 8 and 9 references creation, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And later on, when he talks about the fact that men don't think that you can be independent of woman nor woman independent of man, because while woman came from man, men are now born of women. That's not talking about their authority. That's talking about men literally coming as from a woman in source. She is the source of the man. The idea then of preeminence probably, or of prominence here, is the idea of source. I think, I think. The problem is I'm only a three on that, okay? I I think I might be a little bit higher 
And the more I thought of it this week, I started Monday, Tuesday, I was authority. By the time I ended the week, I was source. And to be honest with you, the more I think about it, the stronger I am on source. But the problem is that it radically changes the way you read the rest of the, the passage. So if you disagree with me, that's fine. Like I said, I'm giving you my, my sort of ranking so that you know that I'm holding this loosely because, again, one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. I'm a three on this one. The seventh issue is specifically what does head covering mean? There are plenty of people who would argue that head covering isn't like a literal covering that you put on your head, but it is the hair that somebody wears. And so women were, instead of having their hair tied up, were letting it flow down, which is argued this is what they did in the cults and, and things like that. In the mystery religions of ancient Greco-Roman culture, the women would prophesy and proclaim uh, oracles and things like that with their hair let down. I don't know. I, I think that, as one scholar said, Greek has a number of really good words for hair, and Paul avoids it until the very end. So the chances are good that it means a literal covering over the head. I'm a three on that. That's not nearly as important as the next two things. The eighth thing is why are head coverings not systematic? It seems as though the logic here just doesn't work. Paul is saying women have to wear a head covering because they have a source. Man is the source of woman, therefore she is to wear a head covering. But he also says that Christ is the head of a man, but men aren't to wear head coverings for that precise reason, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, if, it seems as though if you have a source, then you ought to wear a covering in order to honor that source, but it doesn't work equally. It's not systematic. It's not applied the same way. Why is that? I think the best explanation is that this covering was a very cultural way of displaying the differences between women and men. A, a, an easy way to signify a woman versus a man. And there's a lot of ways that we do this, but this was a very clear and distinct way, whether it's within the church's culture, because Paul references all of the churches going back to Jerusalem, all of those churches, this is the way that we practice things. Whether it was just a church culture type thing, or whether it was a Greek culture type thing, it seems as though the wearing of, of head coverings was specifically meant to say, this is a woman, that is a man. For instance, Paul goes on to mention Listen, if you're not wearing a head covering, it's, it's just like you're cutting your hair short. It's like shaving your head. And in the wider Greek culture, we know that women did this. And the best examples we have of women cutting their hair short were specifically to make them look like men. Whether that was because of, of directly because of abhorrent sexual practices or a something further down the road from those sexual practices, it was the same. They, all the cutting of the hair short was to make them look more masculine. This seems to be exactly what Paul is talking about. So the solution isn't the same for each because basically it's a distinction. This, this head covering is meant to be a distinction between women and men. I would give that about a seven. I'm pretty confident in that. The last thing we're going to talk about this morning is how a woman is man's glory. The contention of everything that Paul talks about up through verse 7 is heading to this. Why ought a man not cover his head? He is not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Don't read too much into that. Paul doesn't mean that women aren't the image and the glory of God. But what he means is specifically in this case is that man is carrying that particular burden, but woman is the glory of man. What in the world does that mean? 
What does it mean that woman is the glory of man? Verses 8 and 9 are meant to explain it. The explanation has two parts, and they're meant to fit together. First, Paul states that women came, woman came from man, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. The implication that she is for us is both to push us back to Genesis and the creation account, and to explain that she is man's glory, man is not her glory. So it's not a, a, a perfectly symmetrical thing, okay? Man is not woman's glory, but woman is man's glory, because woman came from man, not man from the woman. And secondly, Paul says this, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, that needs a little bit of explanation. And to do that, we're going to talk about Genesis. And we need to remember precisely the situation that came up when woman was made from man. Woman wasn't made from man until we, through the first chapter, it's kind of an overall synopsis, and then in the second chapter of Genesis, we read that there is all the, the land that was given to Adam, he breathed dust into, the nostril, or in, into his, his nostrils to, to bring him alive. And he looks at the man and he says, what? It's not good for him to be alone. Which should strike like a thunderbolt coming after all of chapter one. Because all we heard in chapter one is, it was good, 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 it was very good. And now when we get to chapter 2, we find where we should expect that very good declaration to come. God looks at it and says, "Eh, not great. Something's not good about this. Therefore, he says, I will make him a helper. I'll make him a helper. That word is not the same as I will make, I will give to him the help. Okay? This isn't like the downstairs of Downton Abbey or something like that. This doesn't mean that what... What Adam really needs is someone to do the dishes. And he, he brings in the monkeys, and the monkeys are too dirty. The hippos are too big. The dogs don't have opposable thumbs. And therefore, there's no one here to do the household chores and to cook meals for him or something like that. That isn't what he means at all. It's important to realize that that particular word, help, is said almost exclusively in the Old Testament of one being alone. It's said almost always in reference to God. So for instance, in Psalm 121, one through two, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My help is from the Lord. That help is not God coming down to make a nice pasta bowl for Israel's salvation or something like that, right? It's not that. It is that he is finding himself, Israel, the the people of Israel, the kings of Israel, the the nation of Israel, all mankind find themselves in a miserable spot. Where will they get help from? They get it from the Lord. This isn't someone who is meant to help him with the tasks that he was able to do but just didn't have time to do. It is someone who takes him from a bad situation and moves him to a good situation. Now, when it comes to the Lord, this is a picture of our salvation. He is our help. What he does for the man here is a picture of that. It is not that, but it is a picture of that. She takes him, this creation of woman from his side, takes him from a position where he is not good to where now the two of them together are very good. In other words, the creation of woman completes the creation of man. It takes humanity 
and all of creation from a bad spot to a very good spot. It makes his glory complete, and therefore she is the glory of man. Just as creation declares God's glory, and the very pinnacle of creation is not the stars in the sky, not the, the wondrous creatures in the sea, but mankind himself. So the reason why mankind is that pinnacle and fulfills all of that is because of the creation of this woman, this woman who is the same and yet distinct. This woman who comes from his side and yet is not an identical representation of him. She is different. She is distinct. And that distinction is the very thing that God says brings about the glory of man. It's what takes him from being not good to being very good. It's not just that when women act by taking off their head coverings here, that they're just sort of discrediting the men in the room. You hear what Paul argues in the middle of this in verse 6, for if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. The, the picture there is not only is man being shamed by this, but women themselves are being shamed by this. This is not good for anyone. The whole idea here is that by removing the distinctions of the genders, what you seem to be doing is moving back to a situation where there is aloneness. Man is alone. There's no more man and woman. There is just one gender. There's just one being. And God says that was not good. To blur these distinctions then, to make both genders and all of their peculiarity and distinction into one, is to turn back to this sort of not good state. And if we wanted to push this a step further, we see that the nature of this distinction being important from the very start of the passage. We focused on the nature of man and woman because that's where Paul's focus is on, but he mentions at the very beginning that Christ is the head of man. So just because Christ has taken on blood and flesh doesn't mean that he is the same, that any man can look at Christ and be like, I am equivalent to Jesus of Nazareth, who is our Lord and Savior. There is a clear distinction between Jesus and every man who comes after him. He is the Lord. There is a distinction between them because we come from him. It is by his work, by his hand that we are saved, and therefore there is a distinction that should never be blurred between us. And even between Christ and God, regardless if you want to take that as, as the Son of God and the Father, or whether you want to take it of Christ and the Father, it makes no difference to me. There still has to be a distinction between the two. To meld them into one thing without distinction is to, again, eradicate the glory of God found in the way his word portrays him continuously as distinct but equal, distinct but the same. So let us do at least a little bit of reviewing what I think, secondly. This is, now we're at the big number two, okay? So let's review briefly what I think Paul is saying in this passage. The main idea is that the women who are prophesying, and note, again, issues of authority are not present here. Prophesying and praying are something that Paul always upholds that women can do. He never says that they can't do this. You'll notice that he doesn't mention preaching or teaching here. 
He doesn't say when they preach or teach they do this, as though they were going against the authority that he writes as present alone for men in the church, and only those qualified men in the church. But rather, when they prophesied or they prayed, they were doing so in a way that culturally indicated that they were exactly the same as men, throwing off this sort of clear cultural sign of femininity. This denies God's work in creation. It misunderstands the thrust of the gospel's work in doing precisely what those primary distinctions were always meant to do. They were meant to take us from a bad situation to a good situation. The rest of the passage is pointing toward this not being an issue of authority, for after all, the woman has a right to decide, generally, how she ought to have, even though she here ought to lay that, that right aside. And then Paul generally talking about the fact that neither men nor women should think that they are independent from one another. And at the end of this, he says, listen, not only was woman brought from man, that doesn't give her preeminence, but man is now born of woman. It doesn't give him preeminence. This is, as theologians would state in their most technical language, even Stephen. You don't get man. Without man, there is no woman. But without women, there are no men. And so because of that, there is no issue here of preeminence. There's no issue here of being one being greater than the other or more important than the other. It is simply that Paul is saying there needs to always be maintained this distinction between them because that was a good thing that God did. It declares his glory. And the reason why it declares his glory is because that's how, you know, frankly, it's a picture of the Trinity, but we don't have time to get into that. Now, again, most of that interpretation stands on whether or not you see husbands and wives here and how you interpret the metaphor of head. So if you change those things, if you see it differently, if you read scholars who believe it differently, they're going to come to different dis distinctions. They're going to, to land more on authority than I did, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. This is what I can do. Have, have this, okay? This is what I've got to offer to you this morning. Let's talk about some applications really briefly before we finish. First, we should do all that we can to keep genders distinguished from one another. And it's clear that all cultures are going to do this differently. And they all are, as folks say, culturally defined and socially constrained. It's true. They are. So if you go back to the time of Jesus, they were all wearing tunics, which look a lot more like dresses than do anything that we wear today, anything that men wear today. That was not the way that they told the genders apart. We can go back to a couple hundred years or even to the Highland Games that happened this year. And you can find men in Scotland wearing, wearing kilts. I almost said quilts, which would be weird. But they're, if they're wearing kilts, they're not doing that because they're trying to appear like women. They're doing it, actually, for the exact opposite reason. They're about to go do something as manly as they possibly can. So these things are culturally defined. However, the norms that we have for these things ought to be followed and ought to be upheld. And generally, honestly, our culture does this. Even, even when people are trying to buck the system, they typically do so by upholding the very distinctions that we, we have set down. So when you see somebody like Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner, right? When he walks out into public, he's not doing it wearing a three-piece suit. But rather, he grows his hair long. He wears makeup. He becomes clean-shaven. He does everything he can to have the appearance of a woman. He wears a dress. He wears jewelry. Because there is this clear distinction between what a woman is meant to look like and what a man is meant to look like. We ought to uphold those things. However, 
this text doesn't say anything about how to change or resist cultural movements or understandings of gender and how they're portrayed in the world. It just doesn't do it. This is, as it were, a snapshot of what the Corinthian culture was like. There are always going to be a, a movement towards and a movement away of how we define gender and what we, we think of as the pinnacles of gender in any situation. And we need to understand that that's going to be the case. So not too terribly long ago, pants were a very clear indication of a man and skirts were a very clear indication of a woman. At some point in time, pants became a more universally worn thing. And the fundamentalists would say, well, no, you, you can't wear pants because men wear pants and women wear skirts. Certain churches moved on quicker with the culture. Other churches went slower and more methodically and still have not, not moved to where it's acceptable. What is the right tempo? What is the right pace to, to take? What are things that we can get on board with and can't get on board with? It takes wisdom. It takes knowledge. It takes time to think through these issues. But this text doesn't help us with it at all. The idea here is simply that whatever those distinctions are, they need to be kept. And further, this text also doesn't mean anything like those distinctions are to be as wide as possible. So men should look as manly as they can. Everyone in here is going to have to go out and get one of those barbed wire tattoos around their arm. You're going to have to get Japanese letters over here, probably a huge eagle on your back. You, you've got to have really short hair, and you've got to talk with a good deep voice. Get a beard, brother. Thank you. I notice you looking at me with shame. It's okay. So... You've got, you've got to do the most masculine things you possibly can. If you're not watching football, you've got to go home and yell, go sports, right? So this is what you've got to do. And women have to look as frilly and as womanly as possible. You've got to wear a dress everywhere. We're, the distinctions don't have to be as wide as all that. What we're saying is the distinctions have to be clear. And there is a vast difference between those two things. Women ought to appear like women Men ought to appear like men. And the reason why is because this is sign of how God has made us rightly and truly and well. God made us well that way. The gospel always seeks to take us from this poorest state of sin and suffering and death to the greatest of heights. And that good news when it was proclaimed in the first century was the best of news to the poor and the oppressed because they didn't have standing anywhere else. Christ gave them a standing that they could never find anywhere. And women were often one of the largest groups of oppressed people in that time. And historically, that has always been the case. Thus, the offer of equality in the cross was profound and wonderful. But we are not to think that the cross provides equality and good without allowing that great variety of God's creation to be maintained that we are somehow supposed to destroy the very distinctions that God has built into us. That very diversity, both in gender or ability or ethnicity, will always be upheld. When John looks at heaven, he sees people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. He sees distinctions there, all unified by the Spirit of God, praising the Lord Jesus Christ. While those distinctions remain, those distinctions no longer imply any oppression, any undervaluing, all are made in the image of God. All are there for the glory of God. 
all work together in one body, one Lord, one baptism by one spirit. Unity together, diversity from one another. Be who you are, but be who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to maintain and be faithful to the nature of your creation. We recognize that what you have made and how you have made it is indeed good. Let us be faithful to that creation, not simply to uphold your glory, but because in your goodness and glory, the distinctions that we find in creation are good and right and true. So help us to navigate these difficult matters here today in a way that both upholds the goodness of your creation and allows for your people to flourish. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response.